With another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode three ninety five, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I am your host, Mister Richie Rich. Oh yeah, year eight, week twenty three, uh, solo show again. MC is still on vacation, out of the country, as it were. So I sit here and I do my very best to carry on putting out subpar, sub quality content. Uh, but you get to hear my voice for one more week. Um, and probably next week too. I don't know. You know, we, we discussed scheduling and the time differential is going to make it difficult for us to come together until MC returns from vacation. So I do the, I do my very best to read the news in these special editions of Richie Rich reads the news. Um, and if you've heard these before, it's not like I lack an opinion on things. Uh, it's just that there's no conversation to carry the show. And so I just jump right into headlines, see where it leads my thought process. Um, and it's filler. It's absolutely filler. Not going to lie. So if you don't like the headlines, you know, piss off, tune back in in a couple of weeks, and I'm sure MC and maybe even KS will be back by then. Uh, so let's just get into it. Um, not going to read all the headlines. There's a bunch. You can join me on the Telegram page for that. Uh, give you the link at the end of the show. Ah, fuck it. T.me slash anarchist experience or T.me slash the anarchist experience. And all the headlines and the articles that I'm going to cover are there. So if you ever want to participate, we usually do it on clubhouse in the future. You can get the headlines, read the articles from there. And if there's one in particular that you want us to comment on, uh, leave a message in the group and we'll definitely get to that one. Uh, otherwise we just use it as backup when the conversation kind of stalls and dies off as conversations do uh, that's where we go and as i said since there's no conversation to be had let's jump right into it uh headline government is largely guesswork uh from the american institute for economic research and not surprising right that this you know that this headline exists but let's see what they have to say government is largely guesswork Arnold Kling, with his characteristic deep insight, recently described the straw man argument against libertarianism and for technocracy. This straw man argument has, Kling explains, the following steps. Libertarianism relies on markets. Markets are optimal only under conditions of perfect competition. The conditions for perfect competition are rarely satisfied. There are many instances of market failure. Therefore, libertarianism does not work. Kling then adds, step two is a swindle. It sneaks in the assumption that markets have to be optimal in order to be preferable to government intervention. Instead, long ago, I offered the aphorism, markets fail, use markets. That is, I readily concede that the market economy is not the same theoretical optimum. The question is what will lead to improvement. I believe that government intervention will often make things worse. Meanwhile, entrepreneurial innovation and creative destruction tends to solve economic problems, including market failures. 
One of the commenters of Kling's post, Matt Gelfand, then offered the following. Let's flip Arnold's line of reasoning around to examine the merits of government action. Government action relies on government actors behaving in the public interest. Governments are optimal only under conditions of perfect altruism of government actors. The conditions for perfect government are rarely satisfied. There are many instances of government failure. Therefore, government does not work. There are many examples of market failure that cannot be overcome by libertarian market processes, and I believe libertarians would agree with at least some of them. They usually involve public goods where competitive actors would be duplicative and inefficient. Thus, a system of laws, the justice system, national defense, public safety, police, fire, firefighters, airline safety, and numerous other examples are more efficiently handled through the polity rather than the markets. Despite at least one of the commenter Gelfin's examples of good government action, namely regulations of airline safety, being highly dubious. My purpose here isn't to challenge the list of examples of good government action. Instead, I'll argue that Mr. Gelfin, like many others, mistakenly assume that the market and government are symmetrical to each other in a way that they are not. Of course, any desired outcome can in practice be pursued either with voluntary action, the market broadly conceived, or with coercive action, government. In this simple way, the market and government are indeed symmetrical to each other, but the symmetry ends. But there the symmetry ends. The logic of this market operations differs categorically from the logic of government's operation. These differences are rooted in but extend beyond the fact that only in markets is all action voluntary. The single most important difference separating market action from government action is this. Unlike decision makers in government, decision makers in markets have access to detailed and reasonably reliable information about the net effects that any of their decisions are likely to have on all affected parties. In addition, decision makers in markets are also uniquely incited to take those actions and only those actions that produce the largest possible positive net effect on affected parties. The fact that this information available in markets is imperfect is indisputable. Also indisputable is the fact that even well-informed market actors often err, but equally indisputable, if not as widely recognized, is the reality that markets have, as an essential feature of their operation, a built-in process for detecting and correcting error, and thus taking into account over time such much, as much relevant knowledge as possible. No such process exists in government. Because of this categorical difference, any supposed supposed sub, substance damn that's a lot of s's, any supposed substantive symmetry between market action and government action is imaginary. The founders, if not the the foundational, if not the only advantage of relying upon markets rather than upon government to supply, say, shoes, is that only in markets is there a reliable source of information about which variety of shoes to produce and how to produce these varieties efficiently. That is, how to produce these varieties of shoes in ways that leave as many resources as possible for the production of goods and services other than shoes. The amounts of their income and the consumers choose to spend on Crocs, Nike sneakers, and Gucci loafers registers the intensity of consumers' demand for each of these kinds of shoes relative not only to consumers' demand for other kinds of shoes, but also relative to their demands for all other goods and services available for sale. The prices of each of the different varieties of shoes conveys at least two critical pieces of information. First, the price of the Crocs tells entrepreneurs just how much consumers are willing to pay for Crocs compared to how much consumers are willing to pay for sneakers and loafers, and compared also to how much consumers are willing to pay for hamburgers, honey, housing, books, bananas, baseballs, and every other good or service currently for sale on the market. Secondly, or second, the price of Crocs relative to the prices of inputs that might be used to produce Crocs 
tells entrepreneurs both if consumers' desire for the Crocs is high enough to justify using the resources to produce Crocs, and if so, just how many pairs of Crocs to produce. If, as is usual, there is some unexpected change in the market, for example, consumers suddenly lose their taste for Crocs, consumers today will not be served as well as possible. Ditto if entrepreneurs as a group commit some error, for example, fail to notice the high consumer demand for blue suede shoes. Too many resources today will be devoted to producing Crocs while too few resources are used to manufacture shoes of blue suede. As a result, the price of Crocs will fall relative to the price of other goods and services, while that of blue suede shoes will surely soon be noticed by profit-seeking entrepreneurs to be high enough to justify increased production of this particular style of footwear. Such price changes and more accurate recognition of existing prices renders what might be described today's inefficiencies or market failures as also today's profit opportunities. Guided by prices, entrepreneurs will profit by shifting resources out of the production of Crocs and into the production of other items, including blue suede shoes. Entrepreneurs who are insufficiently alert to market realities are revealed in the prices of both inputs and outputs, or entrepreneurs who are too incompetent to act profitably on market information suffer losses. These entrepreneurs thus wind up controlling fewer resources with greater amounts of resources coming to be controlled by entrepreneurs who are more alert and more competent. The self-interest of entrepreneurs combined in the market with the self-interest of consumers and input suppliers, and also with the ability of consumers and input suppliers of each to say no, to offer they judge to be unattractive, to cause opportunities for improving the allocation of resources to be revealed in the market prices. Again, such information is never revealed perfectly, nor is it ever acted on with only unalloyed expertise. But the very essence of the market process is to reveal such information and to incite everyone in the market to act on it. No such process of information revelation is available for government action, precisely because government intervention into markets is intended to disregard or to override market signals. Government officials, if they are to improve the welfare of citizens, must have access to information that is superior to that which is available on markets. But government officials, in fact, not only do have no superior source of information, they have no good source of information at all. The best they can do is guess. This absence of information available to government officials is especially acute problem for those officials who fancy themselves able to improve the economy's performance by nationalizing industry, by using subsidies and protective tariffs, tariffs or by imposing corrective taxes here and there. But this absence of information is ubiquitous throughout all government affairs. No matter which project government undertakes as a government, its officials cannot really know in the way that market participants know just what to produce, how much to produce, and how best to produce it. Even the local government that supplies policing services paid for with tax dollars has no solid information about just how much policing to supply or how best to supply these services. Consumers don't express their demand for government-supplied policing by voluntary spending their money for it. With the ability to change the amounts they spend in response to changes in the quality of or the desire for the service provided. While grotesque government incompetence on this front might prompt changes for the better through the ballot box or through people voting with their feet and move to other jurisdictions, for many compelling reasons that sorts of information revealed in elections or by moving from jurisdiction to jurisdiction has none of the details, nuance, richness, or timeliness that characterize the information conveyed in markets. Politically conveyed information is so thin, noisy, and out of date, and hence so unreliable as to differ categorically from market-conveyed information. As the policing example suggests, the lack of reliable information available to government actors to use 
to carry out various tasks doesn't imply that there are no tasks appropriate for government to undertake. Sometimes political instinct tells us that this or that task, if left to private market forces, would likely be performed even worse than it is assigned to government. And sometimes this instinct might be correct, although there's no way to verify this conclusion. Whatever, the, whatever is the case offered in support of government action, a respect for honesty should compel those who make this case to admit that government officials who carry out the prescribed action are neither guided nor incited by the kinds of detailed information that guides and incites market actors. Unlike actions taken in markets, even the best government action carried out in the most appropriate circumstances are guided by little more than guesswork. End of the article. Now, since I said I offer my opinion, I will do so. Uh, and I will take issue um, with the first premise. Um, and I'm, I'm probably intellectually wrong about this. Um, but I feel like I make the case pretty well. Uh, part four from the top of the article. There are many instances of market failures. I personally don't like that terminology. Um, and even the, the next part of the paragraph where it says markets fail, use markets. Um, I don't like the concept of market failures the way that they define it because I personally believe that the market operates uh, most optimally. And if there's evidence of a market failure, it's not really a market failure, but usually a business failure within a market, right? And, and I guess the, the best way for me to kind of flesh that out is um, the, the understanding of market failure is there is a demand for some good for which there is no supply or lack of supply or whatever. And therefore, you know, the, the, the demand goes uh, unmet, uh, and in my mind, you know, there, you know, you, you can call it a market failure if like only a handful of people desire a product, right? And therefore there's not, there's not the profit motive for any entrepreneur organization to undertake the production necessary to provide that product to that s small niche market. Um, and I would suggest that that's because the price isn't right. Right, like we, this whole article basically lives on the pricing mechanism, and I would suggest that at the right price, right, that becomes a market fulfilled, uh, and you know, and, and not a market failure. That's a that's a that's that's not a market failure. That's the failure in the market, uh, f you know, in at at the business level for a business to provide that product, or the consumer level, right, to to be willing to pay what would be the market rate for that product. And it's possible, right, that neither side is willing. And they might call that a market failure, right? If, you know, I want X, uh, but I'm only willing to pay, you know, so much money for X. And the producer goes, well, it costs like twice that to produce it. So, you know, you're not going to get X until you're willing to pay at least twice. And even then there's no profit, right? So you, got, you have to pay more than 2X, in order to, to fulfill that market. Um, the other thing that gets mentioned is the free rider problem, right? You know, like, oh, it's a market. If you, if you have public transportation and you don't charge for it or whatever it is, then everyone will just ride for free. Or if you provide something for the public, you know, and charge, don't charge equally, then some people will just, will, will free ride. 
Um, and I've, always, I've, I've suggested a number of times that I'm, I'm, I am a member of the free rider problem, right? If you, if you provide something for free, you best believe that it's my goal uh, to overuse that, right? Like that's, that's, you know, that's kind of my thing. I like free, um, free to me, you know, if, if you want to go that far. But if it's provided for free, like let me take advantage of that as much as possible. So I believe in the free rider problem. Um, I also believe that if companies are going to produce goods, right, like if, if you have, you know, the, the public roadway, and every you know and and i'm going to overuse it because i'm not paying into it i'm the free rider right that companies will build that in right and i think one of the the better examples for this um is again the business that i've been wanting to start uh but it's not going to happen here in new hampshire for quite some time um uh payday loans right payday loans charge exorbitant interest rates on the loans and the, there's two main reasons for that. The, the first one is the loans are riskier than normal bank loans. Like you're not, you're not loaning money uh, to individuals with a track record of paying their loans back. So they pay more, right? Like if, if you are one of these, uh, these payday loan people who are always getting a payday loan, you're paying more because you're bad with money, right? That's, that goes without saying. Like certain things hit at certain times. And I get it, you know, sometimes uh, expenses come up, like surprise expenses out of nowhere, and you, you just need it to get by, right? Uh, could have happened to me uh, several times over the last year uh, with my, my car troubles that I, I don't know how much I talked about on here. Um, but those were, those were big expenses um, that if I was not better with money uh, would not have, you know, would have set me back quite a ways. And in, maybe even into the realm of needing a payday loan uh, because the expenses were so great. Like they come up, people need the loan short term, and boom, they have to pay more because that's, you know, that's how the markets work. Um, however, one of the other things built into those exorbitant interest rates is the understanding by the payday loan operator that not everyone is ever going, that not everyone is going to pay their loan back. Like they are going to take significant losses basically handing out free money uh, to individuals who have no desire, no willingness, or no ability to make, the, make that loan payment, let alone the exorbitant interest on top of that, right? So, so that particular industry undergoes a significant more amount of defaults than the other industries, right? And in doing so, in order to make their profits and absorbing this risk and absorbing these defaults, right, that those defaults are de facto paid for by uh, the other people taking out the loans and paying the higher interest rate, right? Um, one of the things that might, you know, should come up uh, with, with especially in San Francisco and California or whatever is a rise in prices at your local uh, drugstore, convenience store, you know, supermarket, whatever, with the ongoing rash of shoplifting, right? Like those people are the free riders. They are walking into the store and walking out with goods that they haven't paid for. Um, I mean, you know, the, the free rider might not apply because it's not legal theoretically, um, but it's de facto legal 
by by the the relaxation of the penalties that those that those uh, cities and states have implemented. So it's de- it's de facto legal, or so you know so minorly illegal that it's just the cost, right? Like you know they say one of the other platitudes is that you know if you're rich enough nothing's illegal it just costs more right like if you're rich if you're rich enough you can park your car wherever you want you just pay the ticket and you're done right so these people these people are de facto free riding on you know the the supermarkets and the drugstores because they walk in they take what they want and they don't have to pay for it legally or illegally and so what'll happen over time is what we've seen is those stores either close right or they have to raise prices across the board to offset the losses caused by these quote unquote free riders uh, and thieves, right? And in doing so, the, the people who bear the cost of that problem is the consumers that still shop there. And that's not a market failure. That is a, re- that, that is a result of market action. And it might, you know, it could turn into a downward spiral right? Where less people shop there because it's more expensive. So the businesses close or, you know, they, they raise the prices to the point where there's still only a handful of people buying shopping there. Um, or, you know, the people stop stealing, right? And then things can kind of level out and go back to normal. Uh, but if nobody shops there and the business closes, that's again, not a market failure. Uh, that is, that is a function of the market, right? That, that business in those conditions are no longer worth operating under. And that's, that's a market phenomenon. And if the businesses want to take it upon themselves, right, instead of reaching out to the local government to get help uh, stemming the tides of shoplifting and theft and vandalism or what have you, uh, then they can do so. And then who bears that cost of security? Right. Well, again, it's the end consumer, right? Because if they if they have to pay for that security service, they're going to build that in to the cost of doing business somewhere, and the prices are going to go up, and consumers are either going to pay the the uh, the increased cost right across the board, or they're not going to pay. And at, you know, supply and demand dictates that if the price is too high, demand goes down, and you know, and if it goes high enough. Demand goes down to such a point where people aren't willing to pay, and the business closes. And to me, that's that's not a market failure. That's a mar- that's a market function. Um, so I don't. I never. I never. I've never bought into the term market failure. Right? Like markets don't fail. Uh, people within the markets fail in some form or fashion. Right? It's supply, demand, quantity, and price. That's the basics. Right there. Right. At some price, right, there's going to be some level of demand and at some cost, some level of supply. And if those two line up, then trade occurs. If those two don't line up, then trade doesn't occur. And failure to trade is not a market failure, right? It's just, it's a failure to come to terms uh, with what's available in the market. Um, So I don't, I never liked that term market failure and that's pretty much why. So in, in my mind, Markets don't fail, so use markets, right? And I don't. And again, the free rider problem built into the market price. Some somehow, some way, right? It's built in. Just 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 as you know, we we shout from the rooftops 
uh, about rising corporate taxes, right? Oh no, tax the corporations. You know, they they've got permission from the government to operate. They're a function of the state. Tax them. Don't tax the individual. Well, guess what? That gets passed down to the individual or the consumers that are shopping there, right? And if you if you tax one corporation uh, too exorbitantly because you think that they can absorb it, right, and then the consumers aren't willing to pay the new price set by the corporation, then you've put someone out, you've put a corporation or a company or whatever out of business uh, by making it not profitable for them to be in that business. And only the government can do that, right? Only the government can can impose a tax so onerous that it drives the price up to the point where the, the companies can't make the money that they could in that industry and will, and will you know, jump ship to another industry. Um, and again, not a market failure. That's government, that's government intervention in the market. Um, and so I know that, you know, although, although there are things that we want, right, that we don't currently have, I'm like, oh man, I wish that product were to exist, right? At some point, at, you know, at some, at some level of cost to you, the individual, right? Like nothing is necessarily impossible, right? It's just, you know, the, the, the answer to Ernie Hancock, the answer is always yes. The question is how much, right? So, so can I make this product a reality? The likelihood is the answer is yes, right? How much is it going to cost and is it worth it? And it being determined to be not worth it is not a failure of the market or a failure of the market system. It's just a failure uh, to, it's a, it's a failure or an unwillingness to meet the price required to make that thing a reality. Um, now I'm not, obviously, let's not get too carried away with that, right? Like, oh, I want interdimensional time travel. Well, what's the cost, right? Like, let's, let's assume that it's a theoretical possibility. What's the cost and are you willing to pay it? And I, I'm pretty sure with whatever you're making at whatever job you have right now, you can't afford it and neither can I. And so it remains a non-reality until such a time as someone bears the cost right? Typically up front, an inventor, an entrepreneur going like, I'm going to throw money at this thing. I'm going to throw so much money at this thing. It will be a reality come hell or high water. And then recouping that money on the back end is where things become sketchy. Oh, and that'll bring up another thing, right? There are those that would say the only way for people to do that uh, is through intellectual property. Right, because who's going to throw all that money at that thing if someone can just copy it after the fact? Well, if you create interdimensional time travel, right, like whatever device you're making, it's going to be a one-off, typically, right? It's going to be very difficult for anybody to get your notes or get your product specs or get a copy of it to reverse engineer it uh, and and offer it offer it cheap. Why, right? Even, even if, you know, they enter the market, they're, they're making the knockoff version of something so intricate that the trust level is going to be significantly lower and those willing to pay that lower price are taking such an increased risk in doing so that it's then justifiable because people who are willing to pay for the top of the line, first of its kind type of technology, right, they always pay more up front and that doesn't even have to extend to the theoretical, Right. You know, you, you can get 
like a hundred inch panel 8K television right now, right? It's available for those with the money, uh, but it's not going to be on my wall anytime soon. Maybe even never in my lifetime, uh, depending depending on you know the the quality and the price when that thing uh, finally makes it. And I and I I know that not in my lifetime might be um, hyperbolic, but I'm pretty satisfied with what I got right now. Uh, and it took me a while to even get this far, right? Like I'm you know out outside of my average every day to day life. You know, I'm still a big fan of, of the retro stuff because I'm old enough to remember the retro stuff. So sitting in storage somewhere is an old flat panel CRT TV that I'm just waiting for the man cave large enough to bring that bitch in and set up with all the old retro stuffs. So in my lifetime, will I have a 100-inch 8K flat panel television on my wall Eh, possibly, but realistically, I'll, I, I can't imagine a time that I'm going to need the wall TV. You know what I mean? So, and again, not a market failure, just, you know, oh, but if it, but if the price was like 50 bucks, like I'll have seven of them, right? You know, so not a market failure, just supply meeting demand at some point in the market. And when supply doesn't meet demand or demand doesn't meet supply, at the appropriate price, uh, that's a functioning market and not a failure of the market to, to do whatever it needs to do. Um, the other, the other thing that I would, you know, that I'll bring up within this article is again, this is more of an economic article, less of an anarchist article, but it's from the school of economics that we typically arrive in, uh, here on the anarchist experience. So I reject that some of those government actions are necessary and I would reject the idea that uh, that the that the market would perform uh, the, the that the market would perform worse than the government, um, because if the government if the government action is that efficient, right, then the market could do it at least that good, right. And if it's not that efficient, and you know, for I don't for policing or fire or whatever those things get assigned to the government because they, they demand a monopoly on those services. Uh, but it wasn't always like that, right? Like private security exists. Uh, private security is generally considered to be better than public security, right? Which is, which is why when the price is right, right? When, when, when you have enough money to afford uh, a bodyguard, right? When you, when your value, when the value of your life and whatever, you know, is, is high enough where someone might think to aggress against you and take that, uh, you, you suddenly have enough funds to provide private security. And it is much better, you know, than the, than the public security that's offered. Uh, and fire services, again, wasn't always a government function. Started with insurance companies wanting protection against, you know, the assets that they were insuring. And then they were motivated, right, to start these services. If we're going to insure your house against fire, we want to make sure that we have a hand in making sure that it does not burn down, right? And at some point in the past, right, government, you know, it became uh, a government-run apparatus, and that's where we are today, right? And, the, you know, which makes me nervous 
when people suggest that the internet ought to be taken over by the government and declared a, a necessity and a utility, right? For all to have across the world, you know, that's, that's another area where they can, they, they call it a market failure, right? Like the rural areas are not served because the corporations can't make enough money to serve these rural areas. So we must nationalize the internet so that these people can get served properly by the state. And I go, well, okay, so they're not being served, not a market failure, right? That is the, the price that which they are willing to pay does not reach the cost that it would be willing to take to run that cable out there. Uh, and there was an instance, you know, that it made the news uh, several weeks ago where a guy was like looking for internet in his, in his rural area or whatever. And it was cost prohibitive for them to like run the cable, like six figures to run this cable out to you. And so what did the guy do? Well, he ran the cable separately and started his own ISP to serve his neighbors. Right? So he found a way to absorb that cost and turn his own profit. Right? Which, which in my mind if, you know, if he, if he's making a profit, I don't know if he's losing money, hand over fist, I don't know, but he turned it into a business anyway. In my mind, that was indicative that the larger company could have charged, you know, could have charged less to run that cable or run that cable and recouped that cost, uh, through serving the market that this guy then served. Right. But it was a risk for the corporation that they were unwilling to take and a risk for the guy that he was willing to take because God damn it, he needed his internet out there. And so it wasn't a market failure. Like the article says it was a market opportunity, right? This guy went, well, I think for that amount of money, I could do it on my own and make more money than that. Uh, and that was, you know, the, the gist of the article. So again, not a market failure, a market opportunity. Can you do it cheaper and, and do it profitably? And if so, then no failure. If you can't, oh, well, then it's still a function of the market. So back to the, you know, the, the, the internet must be nationalized to serve those areas. There's an admission there potentially, right? Because if, if you wanted to serve those areas, right. And the, and the normal ISP isn't doing it right. We already have the solution, right? Like this guy showed how it can be done. And if it can be done profitably, right, then you still need not get the government to interfere you just need to compete in the marketplace, right? If, if you see an unserved rural area that you go like, man, I really wish those guys had high-speed internet or I really wish had, I had high-speed internet out there, right? You can personally take the risk and try to form your own ISP to serve that market. Uh, and if you're like this guy, you might even be able to make it a profitable business and, and you know, career change or whatever. But if, you're, if you admit to yourself or to anyone else that, you know, it's an unserved market simply because there is no profit to be made, right? Then assigning it to the government means that the government will run it at a loss. And when the government runs it at a loss, it runs inefficiently, right? And at the cost of people not receiving the service, right? Because the government's going to have to tax someone or take it out of the budget somewhere to pay for this internet service going to this small amount of rural customers who pay, you know, less than what we would consider to be the market value for that service. Uh, 
and we know this again because the government is doing it, um, and which means no no market actor thought it was going to be profitable, or they chose not to do it, and then the government will run it at a loss. Now, if the government runs it as the ISP could have, right, and runs it as, as, as a profit, you know, somehow, some way, then they're still not more efficient than normal business because all they've done is prove that it could be done, right? And therefore, any other business could have done at least that well, uh, but more likely could have done it better if they took the appropriate risk. And that's another thing that it comes down to is who's, who's willing to take that risk, who's willing to front the upfront cost uh, to get that done. And that risk and that upfront cost, if we want to turn this back to anarchism ever so briefly, right, is what separates the commies from the ANCAPs, right? You know, the, the commies, they, they want the means of production. They want, uh, you know, uh, uh, collective control over all these things. Um, and it's within their purview to get it, right? All they have to do is collectivize the funds that they currently have in existence and enter into the market and purchase these things. Now, the likelihood of any, you know, ANCOM or actual communists having the funds necessary to enter into that market is slim to none, which is always why there's a demand to seize it from somebody that already has, somebody that has already taken the risk, entered into the marketplace, you know, put up the upfront cost. Um, and when they, you know, when they, when they hire communists on the job, right, those, those commies don't think they're getting paid a fair wage and they want a share of the company profits. And it's like, well, you didn't put up any of the risk, right? What did you bring to the table aside from the labor that you traded for the wage you agreed to? And the answer is usually nothing. So even if they produce excess value, you know, the, the profits is the excess value of the labor, uh, it, it still has to go, it still has to be weighed against the risk and the upfront cost that that business owner uh, fronted, right? And with, if they're not willing to, to if, if they are willing to take that risk, right, then they can enter the market themselves. And if they're not willing to take that risk, right, then they're not entitled to any of the proceeds that result, you know, from that risky behavior, right? The greater the risk, the greater is the reward. Well, the greater the risk, the greater the potential for fail, failure. And those that take those risks either reap the benefits uh, or absorb the failures, right? If, if the company takes a risk and goes bankrupt and you find yourself out of a job, well, them's the breaks, right? You, you can go trade your labor for any dollar amount you think you can get elsewhere for the most you can think you can get elsewhere. And that's, that's just, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, the current job, I'm not going to get into it too much. The current job that I recently took after my last, uh, bout of no longer being needed, um, is not necessarily a pay raise, uh, for me, but I took that job while weighing it against other jobs that I was applying for and interviewing for because there's bonus money, right? And, and for, for several years, I don't even know how I got into this, but even starting with, uh, you know, like I've, I've worked retail sales, um, where, you know, you, you got minimum wage or close to minimum wage, 
um, but you got a commission of sales, right? I'm like, all right, let's do that. You know, like uh, I am, I am secure in my ability to sell. Let's do that, right? And and then I got into restaurants, and for whatever reason, like it didn't make sense to me, but it totally makes sense now. Uh, the restaurants that I got into paid a base base wage, uh, plus you know back of the house, you know we don't get tips, uh, but we got a percentage of the sales. Like the kitchen, the kitchen made money based off how much food we we know we got out there. So there was an incentive right to to push the food out as quickly as possible to get more orders in and you know we were we were properly incentivized and i always feel that that bonus structure is you know properly incented to do it because there's always there's always some amount of work uh in any job even commission work right like it's it's weird to me to work on straight commission um because there's a lot of work that doesn't directly relate to a sale Right. You got to do all the fucking paperwork and, you know, time on the road or time at the house or, you know, all this, all this stuff that is incidental to the sale and to the commission. Right. Like I talked to some, you know, to some tip servers at one point, like, why would you even come in on a Monday? You know, you, you know, Mondays are slow, like back of the house, you know, if I was getting, if I'm getting a percentage of sales, like, I'm off on Monday and Tuesday, man. Like bring, bring me back when it's going to be busy. Cause that's the way to maximize my dollars. Um, and the answer that I got was reasonable, right? It's like, well, I come in on Monday so that they let me come in on Friday. Right. If you don't work Monday, they don't call you back for Friday shift. And so you, you, you know, you take some lumps, you take some good days with the bad days and I'm like, all right, fine. So Mondays, you know, you, you're, you're making bare minimum pay, you bare minimum work. Like, let me know, let me know when there's money to be made and I'll be there. So I, I, I forewent, foregone, uh, higher paying base jobs on the belief, understanding, hope, I guess, since, since I'm new, right? I I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, I'm big on the potential to bonus significantly more, um, through my efforts on the job. And it's indirect efforts, right? Like I'm not, I don't do sales. I'm, I'm in the marketing department. So my efforts to get people, to get the salespeople set to, you know, to, to maximize their sales indirectly bonuses me. And, you know, there's, there's other way. I'm not going to get into it. Um, but I go like, damn, if, if we hit those bonuses, right, the base pay is cons- inconsequential, right? The, the base pay is just there right? The, the base pay like pays the bills and everything else is play money at that point. And I like, you know, I like play money cause I like Bitcoin. And if I can, if I can bonus my way back to a significant holdings of Bitcoin before the next bull run, well fucking count me in daddy. So yeah, to the point, no market failures, no government intervention, no need, no need for governments to involve themselves in market activity. And again, even if the government could do the market properly, right? It, you know, the, a broken clock strikes, to, strikes right twice a day, right? It's, it's not that it's because of the government. It's incidental that the government just happens to be in a position to do it better. And that's usually because in a lot of the cases, um, they've declared themselves a monopoly on those services, and so there's no competition to get them to improve. 
So we could have it better. It might be worse. Um, you know, I hate that. I hate that argument coming from libertarians. Well, you know, like private war, private roads could be a lot more prohibitive than what we have today. And I go, I don't know. Like you're right, it could be. But what I am seeing on the roads today is the consumer demand for less restrictive roadways, right? And I can't imagine a supplier coming, you know, a private supplier coming to the table and making things worse for consumers because all that does, all that would do is open up the potential, right, in the marketplace for someone to compete. You know, maybe we get the flying cars at that point because no one wants to drive on your stupid prohibitive roadways. We get the flying cars at that point and roads become inconsequential. So, you know, if, if it were to get worse, right, in the market, uh, again, I just look at that as a market opportunity. Like some, someone will step in and go like, no, nah, just come use my roads. Right? It's a fucking free-for-all. Don't hit the car coming at you the other way. Right? And, you know, at some happy medium we shall meet because – as much as I like the free-for-all idea, uh, I like my dividing lines down the middle of the highway. So maybe, maybe not too extraneous uh, on the free-for-all on the roads, but again, I think that's well in demand, and I think that's what will be supplied uh, if, and, if and when we ever get to the private road aspect of things. And if it's not, still not a market failure, just not enough consumers standing up for themselves and demanding more of those road suppliers. All right, let's move on. This next article has an odd title. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I want to avoid the title potentially because I think that it's applicable across the board um, for anybody looking to get away from you know the, the economic collapse. So the article title is, If Red States Want Protection from Collapse... They'll have to build alternative economies. And it's not just red states, right? It's, it's individuals within any of those states, right, who want protection from the state. And this is where we go back to the idea of agorism, the parallel economy, and all that other fun stuff that maybe we'll get into after the article read here. But it's imp- that's, one of the, that's one of the important things all around, right, to separate yourself from the state entirely um, and to bring other people with you, you have to sh- you have to show them a better way, and that better way has to exist in parallel to the current operation of the state, so that when people finally get fed up of the state, they see a place where they can move and they see a better way. Right? Again, the beauty of Bitcoin is that it runs parallel to all the state-funded. Uh, uh, country dollars, you know, the Federal Reserve note, the International Monetary Fund, whatever, whatever state-funded currency is or, or state-produced currency is, uh, the, the, the people who got in early on Bitcoin, it wasn't necessarily the price because the price wasn't there. Uh, it was, holy shit, we can do this in parallel to the state. You know, we, we can have our own money and get stop using the state money, um, and that lasted for as long as it did. So reading into the article here, economic centralization is the ultimate form of organized conspiratorial power because it allows a small group of people to dictate the terms of trade for a society and therefore dictate the terms of each person's individual survival. 
For example, the Federal Reserve as a banking entity has free reign to assert policy controls that can disrupt the very fabric of the U.S. economy and the buying power of our currency. They can and do arbitrarily create trillions of dollars from thin air, causing inflation or arbitrarily raise interest rates and crash stock markets. And according to former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, they answer to no one, including the U.S. government. I have started to see a new narrative being spread within mainstream media platforms as well as alternative media platforms, suggesting the Fed is necessarily necessary because it's working to counter the agenda of Joe Biden and the Democrats. Uh, some people claim the central bank is protecting America from the schemes of the UN and the European interests. I'm going to interject real quick right here as well um, because I read you know foreign articles, and I want to I want to stop calling the mainstream media, the mainstream media. Um, and I want to, and I want to start calling them, uh, the state sponsored media, U S U S government sponsored media, right? Because it's a more accurate term at this point. And anytime I read an article, uh, about RT or Al Jazeera, right? It's all, it's always the, the state run media outlet, right? And so let's start using that term, the U S state run media outlet, um, when referring to the mainstream media. <clears throat> Back into the article. This is perhaps the most moronic theory I've ever heard, but it makes sense for the central bank and its puppets. Puppets would be trying to plant the notion that the Fed is some kind of hero, secretly fighting a war on our behalf. The money elites associated with the Fed have inflated perhaps the largest financial bubble in the history of the world over the past 14 years. They did this with bailouts. They did this with QE. They did this with COVID pandemic checks and loans. And now the bubble is popping. They know it's popping because they want it to pop. As I've warned for years, the Fed has been staging a massive controlled demolition of the U.S. economy. Why? Because the U.S. economy must be diminished in order to make way for the Great Reset, a term created by the World Economic Forum to describe an unprecedented paradigm shift in the global economy and how it operates, and a complete upending of society. The endgame is openly admitted, a one-world digital currency system and a one-world governance controlled by a league of corporate partners working in concert with politicians, I'll interject, aka fascism. <clears throat> this is not conspiracy theory, this is conspiracy reality. This is undeniable fact. The Fed does not care about the U.S. economy. Its loyalty is to a global agenda, and it takes its marching orders from a consortium of banking institutions called the Bank of International Settlements. This is how global central bank policies are coordinated to either work in harmony to create artificial stability or to work in conflict, creating artificial crisis events. The truth is, the foundation of global governance already exists. But what the establishment does not have is public acceptance and total submission to their authority. What makes banks want to create a crisis so profound that the masses will run to them begging for help? <clears throat> Once the population begs their captors for relief or resolution and it is given, it is far less likely that the people will revolt against those captors in the future. Psychologically, the central banks and the establishment elites are trying to create a planetary Stockholm Syndrome and we're seeing it already with the Federal Reserve being painted as the shield holding back the tide of economic ruin that they actually engineered. The initial stages of the Great Reset have already been launched. 
With the economic bubble expanded to incredible levels, the Fed is now staging an aggressive implosion using interest rate hikes into economic weakness. There are multiple threats that come with this dynamic. The first, stagflation. With stagflation, normal credit market interventions do not necessarily work right away. As we saw recently with the official CPI print rising despite the Fed's rate hike, prices are not going to go down that easily. During the last stagflation event, 40 years ago, the Fed raised rates to around 20% before prices finally stopped their epic climb, and back then the U.S. did not have $31 trillion in debt, nor did it just print over $8 trillion in the span of two years. Rates are likely to go much higher than many people expect. Number two, treasury bond crisis. The Fed replaced foreign investors like Japan and China as the primary buyer of U.S. government treasury bonds, and they did so years ago. Now with the Fed cutting purchases, reducing its balance sheet, and raising rates, who is going to buy all that U.S. debt and keep the government funded? Well, the answer is no one. For now, foreign purchases are enough to give a semblance of stability, but with geopolitical tensions rising, it's only a matter of time before countries like China dump their T-bonds and dollar holdings completely. Then the dollar's world reserve status will come into question, and inflation becomes an even greater threat than the trillions of greenbacks held overseas come flooding into the U.S. again. Number three, stock market spiral. Without the Federal Reserve as the backstop fueling corporate share buybacks with cheap money, stocks will continue to slide. They'll jump every now and again, uh, every now and then, on rumors that the Fed will pivot away from tightening, and when the Fed doesn't, stocks will start dropping again. Without stimulus and near zero rates, there's no hope for equities beyond the occasional jawboning. The Fed has the ability to slow down or speed up all the conditions above, and so far, they appear to be speeding things up. We obviously can't rely on the Biden administration to do anything about these problems. In all likelihood, Biden and his handlers are joyful in the prospect of the inevitable calamity. No one in government is trying to do anything legitimate to stop the landslide, and no one is trying to prepare Americans for the consequences. In fact, Americans are being told there are no consequences. Thus, it's up to the individuals to prepare and warn their friends and family. Uh, but what about a larger organized response? Well, there's your response right there, interjecting. Uh, it's up to the individuals and their families to prepare and warn their friends and families. Uh, that's it, right? Like, the, here's, here's your sign, right? Right now, here's your sign to start preparing, right? Do what you can, get out of the dollar, start your prep work. Uh, saw a meme the other day and today again, uh, you know, it was like a one from the office. It's like, Oh, preparing for the collapse. What are you stocking? Like guns and ammo. Really? You're not stocking any food. Well, lady, you're stocking my food. Right. And if it comes down to that, it's, it's a weird situation where, um, he who is more savage wins, right? If it, if it comes down to like you and your neighbor, on who's going to survive um, because the situation is that dire, right? Do you have what it takes to end another human life in response to your own and your own family survival? It's going to get hairy. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's a lot of people out there um, with the stomach for that. Back into the article. Numerous, despite numerous claims, that conservatives would do nothing to stop the rise of medical fascism in the name of the COVID pandemic. Almost half of the states in the U.S. stood their ground against the mandates and the push for vaccine passports. 
If this had not happened, America would look like China does today with endless lockdowns and draconian tracking apps. I don't think enough people understand just how close we came to losing every freedom we have left. We were on the doorstep of an Orwellian hell and probably civil war. The red state defiance of COVID restrictions represents an organized action at the state and interstate level. What if these states did the same thing in the face of the economic crisis? Without organization at the state level to create an alternative to the mainstream economy, the plight of the public becomes much more daunting and dangerous. Rather than trying to start completely from scratch, there are solutions that can be pursued at the state level to help mitigate this disaster. Uh, Currency alternatives. There you go. States like Texas, Utah, and Louisiana, currently Dem-controlled, all have legislation in place to utilize gold and silver as legal tender. Such efforts need to be expanded to as many states as possible, and the list of alternatives need to grow. Gold, silver, copper, other commodities like oil, electricity, wheat, and grain could be used to back a state-recognized currency system. Is this constitutional? Not technically, but the federal government violated the constitutional money creation mandate over a century ago when they allowed the institution of the Federal Reserve. The system is already broken. And I would suggest that it is constitutional or at least well within the federal law. Uh, maybe not all the other commodities, but definitely uh, gold and silver. I like that's, I don't remember the coinage act, but it's in there somewhere. If states were to offer commodity backed currencies in parallel with the dollar, then they could actually stave off price inflation and possibly reverse it. This can't be achieved by only one or two states, though. It would have to be organized among multiple states with multiple trade agreements in place. Uh, Number two, state banks. North Dakota has its own state-run bank that provides credit opportunities specifically to North Dakota locals and North Dakota businesses. It has operated successfully for decades. Why has no other state adopted this model? Why should we rely on banks that are all tied back to corporate conglomerates that want to destroy us? State banks are the answer to this problem of leftists and globalists using corporate banks as a weapon against conservatives and liberty activists. And I'll interject once again, I don't know how accurate my information is, uh, but there are no national banks in Hawaii. Right? When I was living there, um, you, couldn't, there's, there, you couldn't find a Bank of America. You couldn't find a Wells Fargo, a TD, a Ameritrade, any of the big, any of the big banks that you're, you know, Chase Bank, any of those big banks that you're familiar seeing uh, don't exist on the islands, right? There, there are local banks on the islands, and you got to find a way to fucking get your money out of there um, as well. I don't think they're necessarily state-run, right? It's not, it's not a state-run bank, but it's definitely, they don't exist elsewhere. Uh, localized trade alternatives. States should be utilizing their resources within their own borders to generate real jobs rather than precarious and temporary service sector jobs and economic prosperity. Why are states and citizens in those states allowing the federal government under under Biden to dictate the terms of how they grow their economies? Leftists will claim that resource management needs to be supervised by federal agencies, but why? These people have consistently proven themselves to be incompetent and destructive. Why should they be trusted to control our ability to expand in our own states? Conservation and intelligent handling of state resources should not be relegated to the bureaucrats who live outside those states and who care nothing about the citizens of those states. Uh, State incentives for industry. The vast majority of retail goods purchased by U.S. citizens are made outside the United States. It's simply a matter of profit incentives involving cheap labor overseas. But what if there were a big tax reduction for companies that manufacture in America? What if state banks offered easier credit to companies that build factories within the state borders and hire American workers at a reasonable wage? It can be done in the U.S. It's been done in the past. 
If we don't restart domestic production, our country is doomed to remain dependent on international corporations and foreign entities that do not have our best interest in mind. The only hope any state has to weather the coming storm is to localize production and manage their resources to kickstart trade. Local production would act as a redundancy should the mainstream economy collapse, which it will. States don't need Biden's permission to make this happen. They don't need the Federal Reserve's permission either. They can and should take action now before it's too late. End of the article. Uh, again, I'll take issue with that last one. Um, individuals, right, make those, make those purchasing decisions based on any number of factors within their own personal lives. So if, if, if you can manufacture and produce a final good of quality cheaper than you can find it elsewhere, then you can. Um, one of the interesting things, if you're going to be a state trading, you know, if you're going to be a state trading on an international level is having the natural resources to do so, right? Like you, you have to, you have to have or do something locally that is of value outside of that. And again, uh, New Hampshire is, I don't know, remember all the top 10, we've covered it um, either on this show, on Free Talk Live. Interesting industry locally that produces quite a bit of exports. Uh, where I was from before in Hawaii is tourism, right? Like the island lifestyle, the beautification of the islands, right? That's, that's the value that we offer, that, you know, that they offer the outside world and therefore could attract tourists to bring their external money to trade with uh, and therefore enrich the local economy, uh, you know, absent government interference. So you, you have to, it doesn't have to be domestic production uh, of, of factory goods or whatever it is, um, but there, there needs to be some sort of, of tradable resource that operates locally, you know, some, some crop or some sort of produ- something to export that the rest of the world values. And again, you don't need the state to dictate that. You just need the absence of, of tariffs, uh, the absence of subsidies, and the, the integration of markets where people can, can decide for themselves, entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurial spirit, decide for themselves what is going to be profitable. And if they can do it profitably in your state, right, big tax reduction. How about just cut the tax, right? Why not, why not make that zero for everyone involved, right? You want people to come, you want people to come and produce in your state uh, and, you know, whatever it is they're manufacturing, like, just don't tax them. You want people to come in and work for those companies? Don't tax them either, right? Get rid of that whole government interference aspect of it, and you will attract a fuck ton of people into that local area and that local economy uh, and get them off the, off the Federal Reserve standard, right? Either gold or silver or copper, whatever commodity coin this thing was talking about, or as I suggested, you know, Bitcoin. Here locally in New Hampshire, we've, got, we've already got the goldbacks, which are circulating, uh, you know, at a trickle right? Uh, around town because some places take it and the more places take it and the more we ask them if they're willing to take it, uh, the more likely it is to, to become a bigger thing. Uh, now me, on the other hand, I've been accused of being a bad activist because I still like spending dollars. Why? Because I have too many fucking dollars to spend. I get paid in dollars. Like my goal is to buy the gold backs and buy the Bitcoin and, you know, accumulate all these other currencies to be used in the event of this coming collapse right? Not, not spend it now while people are still accepting dollars, right? I got to get rid of as many dollars as I can by buying up these other commodities um, while I still can, right? Because at some point when people stop accepting the dollar, 
uh, then we're all screwed, except for those of us that have the alternative currencies ready to go. Uh, I am over my time, so I'm going to wrap it up there. Thank you very much for listening. You guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com. Again, on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience or t.me slash theanarchistexperience. And if you would like to contribute to the show financially, the best place to do so is Patreon. The only place to do so is Patreon. Patreon.com slash theanarchistexperience. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you all next week. Peace.